Hey there, this is Walter, part of the Beyond the Mask production team. And before today's episode, just want to drop you a quick note that a technical recording glitch led to today's episode being recorded on a less capable microphone. So you'll notice the overall sound quality is a little less than what you're used to hearing. We apologize for that inconvenience, and thank you for bearing with us. It's still going to be a great episode, and we've done our best to clean things up to make it as clear as possible. So thanks again for your understanding. Now, let's get to the episode. Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the insurance specialists at BrightThink Wealth Strategies. Find the disability insurance coverage that fits you best right now. Email Robert Smith at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. The show is also made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. We'd also like to thank Helping Hands and OSA EMR for their support of the show. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7. Sharon, good afternoon. We're back together. We sure are. Here. Did you miss me for I, the I, whole two hours we were apart? I, I had to go to the student luncheon, and uh, I don't know where you went. Where uh, were you? I went and had lunch with uh, Nikki Bowser from Southeast, mm-hmm. Aaron Foley from Maine, Yana, everybody knows Yana, Yana. Yeah. Uh, from New York, and Cassandra from Missouri. Missouri. Yep. That's right, the M's sometimes. That's right. Get me, get right. me stumped up. So I had a multicultural diverse yes, you did. lunch. <laughs> In some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody yeah. from everywhere. That's what's so great about these meetings. Yeah. Is yeah. seeing all these people that I haven't seen in three years. Yeah. It's been a great meeting. It's it's nice to be back in person and Love in Chicago. Maybe I'll get to see the outside today in a little bit. You didn't bit, get your so. walk in? No. Of course not. Of course not. <laughs> uh, well, we have a special guest with us today. We do, and I'm super excited about this. Yes, we have Mr. Bill Bruce. Bill, welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. And the new CEO of the AANA. And uh, boy, you're in the hot seat now. <laughs> <laughs> didn't waste any time. <laughs> Well, for our listeners who maybe haven't had the opportunity to meet you and, and know a lot about your background, why don't you just kind of give a, a run of the mill of where you came from, how you got here? And- yeah, absolutely. So, um, well, I've been I've been with the AANA now since uh, well, since the June. Yep. Um, and uh, obviously new to the organization, but not new to associations. Uh, prior to this, I was the CEO at the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine, which is uh, a smaller medical specialty, uh, also local to Chicago here in the House of Preventive Medicine, um, generally. 
Prior to that, I, I had a number of years working with orthopedic surgeons over at AAOS, and prior to that, uh, with psychiatrists at the APA over at Washington, D.C. Um, also, about 20 years of experience, a little more, uh, working with different medical specialties. I'm very happy to come to the, my fourth area of medicine and happy to be back to a more clinical specialty. So, this nice. has been great. So, were you CEO of any of those organizations or? Yes, okay. uh, of, of the most recent. I was the CEO at, at ACOM, uh, we call it, um, on the prior to AAOS and, um, the APA, I had varying uh, IT-related roles. Initially, I was uh, I got into the association business through an IT job, just running the technology department back at the APA. Uh, did so at a really interesting time. They had just gone through a lot of work to replace some systems related to the, the Y2K scare. We all remember that. The ones at this table, our <laughs> listeners, not all of them will even know what Y2K is. Yeah, I'm sure there's a Wikipedia page. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you got <laughs> But um, anyway, it was, it was a big uh, um, debacle that cost a lot of companies a lot of money in sure. investing in new, new technology. It's Absolutely. not necessary. Exactly. And um, I was one of the early people to identify that some of those investments did not uh, need to be made. And uh, that led to my ascent in that organization to become their their CIO. So I was their CIO from uh, halfway through about 2002, if I'm remembering correctly, (laughs) on to about 2012. And um, I fell in love with the idea of working with with a a membership organization while I was there. It was great to be a part of an organization that was, uh, you have to run an association like a business uh, to a certain point. But you're free of the expectations of a bottom line of a quarterly earnings report, mm, yeah. um, at least to a point. Right. You have some latitude in, in what you can do with an organization there that is um, that, that is compelling, uh, and and you're helping an organization and its members become more and do more. And um, I found that to be very motivating. So, what was the membership uh, percentage in those organizations? And the reason why I ask is because our membership percentages. Mm-hmm. Very high. It's a lot lower than it used to be whenever I was brand new CRNA, but we still have 86% of all CRNAs belong to their professional organization. What was that like in your others previously? So the best I recall um, with psychiatry, we were around 60 to 70%. Okay. Um, so it's healthy, respectable. Yeah. I, I think orthopedic surgery, uh, we were in that same neighborhood. Um, orthopedic surgery has a lot of competition and a lot of insight competition sure. because mm. there are numerous subspecialty organizations. Gotcha. And uh, there are a number of, of those, well, with the subspecialty organizations, unlike with the AA and the MSA societies, the subspecialties of the AAOS uh, do not necessarily have a, a, a dual membership requirement. They're actually gotcha. completely different specializations. And um, so a number of orthopedic surgeons would choose their primary specialty not to be the broader AAOS, but maybe hand surgery, foot and ankle, whichever society is, is relevant to what they tend to do the most of on a day in and day out basis. So their numbers were a, a little bit suppressed just because of the nature of what orthopedics is. As best as we could tell with uh, occupational environmental medicine, it's a little bit harder to get a handle on the market of how many people that is. Uh, we were about 75%. Oh wow! Um, so it's pretty pretty healthy, yeah. and um, but yeah, again, that's um, that, that's especially that, that 
has declined in its numbers over the years because it was a bit um, forgotten. You know, we, we were suffering from a not, not a lot of residency support. And so we would see programs over the past 20 years slowly closing down. And of course, when we got COVID, you know, remembered this specialty that was whole purpose was getting people healthy and safe while working. It brought a lot of new relevance to the organization, which, which made the last few years there very exciting. And uh, we started to see some growth and some continued interest and some new funding going into our residency programs. And it was, it was fantastic. It was a good time to, to, to see them through that. What, what I hope for them was a, a turn and, uh, you know, maybe future growth that uh, can, can, be, can accelerate what we do. Um, yeah, so so respectable number mm-hmm. numbers, but not not what what um, you know, coming into the AA and A and seeing numbers in the in the eighties and nineties. That's incredible for for an association. It really yeah. is. So. Yeah, I think it is too. But where are you originally from? I, I've never asked you that. Uh, yeah, I, I was born in San Jose, California, and uh, I grew up in a small town in Central California, uh, Lodi, California. It's uh, known for wine grapes primarily. Um, and being very hot and dry. Um, yeah, it makes great wine, wine, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, well, yeah it, 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 it's where wine grows. And uh, yeah, but I, I spent a lot of time between Lodi and the San Francisco Bay Area. I saw family in both places. It's a great part of the world that uh, it's good to visit and it's, uh, it's good to be from. So, so you've been here since late, late June. Anything yeah. surprised you up to this point? Anything, you know, sort of taking you back a little bit? Well, you know, that's, that's interesting. Whenever you start a new job in the association industry, because no two organizations like this are exactly open. Right. Um, there's always going to be some surprises. There's always going to be some things that you scratch your head and like, what, what were they thinking? <laughs> and um, sometimes that's because you're new and you don't understand yet. Right. right. And right. sometimes because <laughs> really you wonder what were they thinking. What yeah. were they thinking? <laughs> <laughs> or were they thinking? Yeah. Uh, but no, I, no, nothing so, so scary. Here. The one thing that I think has been, to me, a really welcome surprise, uh, and this this was true of last night's foundation. That this was something that, that really uh, was driven home, and I could see signs of it throughout the, the, the previous couple of days and the past couple of months. But this organization, this membership, is, is truly a profession that warmly and openly welcomes people to be their authentic selves in a way that no other part of medicine that I have been involved with has done. And that's something that I think um, CRNAs and the ANA should absolutely celebrate. It's probably more rare than maybe some people see on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. It, was, it, was, um, it, it was a refreshing surprise to see that and to see that uh, the, the amount of diversity and embrace diversity within the, the folks here, particularly our students. It's just wonderful, and, and I love being a part of an organization that's like that. So. Well, I will tell you one thing about your staff. You've probably already figured this out, but it has always amazed me how much they buy into what we do Absolutely. as a profession. Mm-hmm. It's not... You know, I work at your association. No, they absolutely buy in. And sometimes some of them buy in more than even some of our members do. And so I'm sure you'll, if you haven't figured that out, you'll, you'll figure that out. Thank you. And that's, that's fairly common in different associations. You have people that have worked, we we work side by side with Mm -hmm. practitioners on different, we have volunteer side, the boards, and we get to know each other. And we, it, we develop empathy and we really do carry the same ideas with us into our own lives. And, and, and 
the staff, the professional association staff are all really good at knowing the impact that their work has and they feel like they are actually helping a profession. That's, that's what keeps us here. We're, we're a part of empowering a profession to be better. And the best association staff do that. And, and I, I've, I've seen that in every organization. I definitely have seen it in the ANA staff. We have a magnificent professional staff that, that um, they, they, they know the value of what they do and they know the potential. And it's, it's really great. And so I'm glad to see that it's recognized. Let me ask you, there, all right, how did you find yourself into association management? There's a gap. Did I hear that you had some military background I did, to you? Yes. So why don't we talk about that, too? Sure. Um, so growing up in Lodi, <laughs> um, there's not a lot to do. Uh, and uh, it's, a good, it's a good place to get in trouble. So I, 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 I wasn't born with a silver spoon or anything, even though I grew up uh, in and around um, around the spoon. Around the spoon, right? <laughs> I, I was near to Silicon Valley. I, you know, a lot of people in my family worked at Silicon Valley in different startups in, in the 80s. And, and uh, my dad, for a time, worked at Atari. Uh, oh, well, that's years. a little claim of fame. Atari. I remember the Atari. Yeah. <laughs> Briefly. But, um, but anyway, we, we, we found our way outside of the Bay Area in, in, in Lodi, where there really wasn't much. And, as I was going through school, uh, I didn't feel like I had a whole lot of options. I didn't quite have my mind set on what I wanted to be. But the one thing that I knew that I needed was I needed to change it. And uh, so I enlisted it. And that was a way for me to sort of reset everything in my life and understand, well, try to understand you know, the kind of person that I was uh, to get away from the culture of my, my family, which, you know, there's good and bad in every family. Mm-hmm. Has, oh, absolutely. You know, things that they can look back on and smile or Right. Um, <laughs> or just scratch your head. Yeah. Well, what, the <laughs> and, well, what were they thinking? Yeah. There you go. Back yeah. to that. And um, so the Navy was 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 the place that I went to discover the kind of person I was, the kind of leader I could be, and the kind of person I was. And um, I, so while I was in the Navy, I, my first I, it was enlisted story. So you, you kind of you're always in for a surprise when you enlist, particularly in the Navy. I think the Air Force does this The Navy is particularly good at this. So telling you about a great job that you will do that's going to get you into a great civilian job after you're done. And, make lots of money. Um, yeah. Right. And, yeah. and, then, and then you get there and it's, oh, darn. <laughs> we just filled that last year. Right. <laughs> so instead, you're going to do this other job that we need more. And so I enlisted to be a gas turbine systems electrician, which... Um, would have evolved into uh, steam power plants and, and working in dams and, and power infrastructure, which sounded, sounded fun and interesting. I didn't know any better at the time. <laughs> um, sure, that sounds like something I could pay the bills or pay yeah. my house with someday. But uh, when I got there, they said, nope, um, that's full. You get to be a gunner's man. And <laughs> I said, well, that's not even remotely the same. <laughs> And um, so I was struggling for a bit, but while I was in boot camp, um, they uh, did some recruiting for the United States Navy ceremony or the ceremonial guard. That's the Navy's ceremonial unit stationed out of Anacostia Naval Naval Air Station, which doesn't have an airfield. Now that I think about it, Um, but Anacostia Naval Air Station in uh, Southeast Washington D.C. And um, so I was recruited into that position. And for the first two and a half years that I was in the Navy, my job was essentially being a casket bearer. And um, in a way, it's a, it's, it's a ceremonial job. So you're, you are your de- functional decoration uh, right. to pomp and circumstances of, of, the, of the military. 
and um, I did countless, well not countless, I did you know, several, um, many hundreds of funerals in Arlington Cemetery. Uh, mm-hmm. Our typical work week would be uh, five to seven funerals a day in Arlington, um, five days a week, and sometimes you would end up you know, going out to Sheltonham, out there, or something, any of the, the more regional Quantico, we would go down to Quantico, mm-hmm. we'd do, do services down there. So if it can happen at a military funeral, I've seen it. Um, and it's, it's a, it, it was a, a wonderful job that gave, gave me a completely different perspective on service and patriotism and, and what those things mean. Along the way, I, I did also discover that I had chosen very poorly. And um, I had met a number of people who had been career aiming and discovered that I'm probably not the best person to be on the ship. Um, I'm moderate claustrophobic, which I didn't know at the time. You figured that out. And uh, so fortunately for people who had that first first job, um, if as long as you're okay, uh, they'll basically let you pick, pick whatever your next duty station is, whatever your next training. So when I was when it was time for me to actually go into training for someone who maybe could get different value out of it, uh, I decided to go into the CVs and learn construction, which was um, yeah. It was a good skill to have. Definitely someone that I, I knew I could be employed with. I was, you know, again, still young, hadn't decided what I wanted to be with profession yet. And uh, so that took me into the um, station down in, in Gulfport, Mississippi. And uh, then I got, I was fortunate enough to be in uh, an MCV one naval construction, naval mobile construction company one. That meant that I was mainly going to be serving in the Atlantic Theater. So uh, my first deployment was in uh, in Rota, Spain. And I got to go to Tunisia as a, as a side trip to do some work, which was just phenomenal. And at a time when um, it was a, a bit more safe for us to go do you know, sort of these, these NATO goodwill missions. Um, the culture is very different now, and it's unfortunate because... Once you got away and out, out into the country and you meet people, um, yeah, there really are wonderful people that live out there with almost nothing, and, and they're, they're they're wonderful humans and they're very generous and, and very kind. Um, and anyway, after that, uh, my next deployment was 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 my last, and when I was off to Guam, um, I was selected to go to San Diego on a session, which I didn't know was not a bad place to be. No, it was, it was, <laughs> and, and the job I had there was fantastic. I was the one of the project managers on a chapel construction project at the Coronado Amphibious Base, where mm. uh, oh, yeah. Navy yes. SEALs get their base yep. right. school. It's where uh, the ladies yeah. go and sit and watch them train on the beach, which is Maybe. a fabulous thing to do. I, I wouldn't <laughs> say that I've done it before, but I may have. <laughs> <laughs> Those four guys come running in with that boat every day. Oh, yes, yes. Every day. And I don't. Mm. I, mean, I had some hard days in the Navy, uh, but nothing. Yeah. With them, yeah. Just what they volunteered to do. And it, it really is incredible. But if you're ever in the Coronado area, you drive yeah. by the old main gate. You can see the chapel that I built oh, um, really? right inside that front. Oh, me. So nice. I'm very happy. Anyway, uh, to get on to the, back to my biography, I um, at the end of, of, of that deployment, uh, I actually requested from the Navy that they released me. It turned out to be about two and a half months early, which is why I say almost five years. Okay. You have to give them an extra year if you're not going to go on a ship. That was the deal. Oh, so gotcha. if you're not going to go on huh. a ship, you, you extend your enlistment by one year. And that's what allowed me to go into the CVs in the first place. But anyway, um, while I was doing that job in the CVs, I was like, yeah, if you want to be an architect, it seems hmm. like a fun 
a fun thing. I like the engineering aspect of this. It's very interesting. It was something that, that I thought about a little bit. And um, the architecture school that I was trying to get into at the time was uh, the California Polytechnic Institute in San Luis Obispo. Um, San Diego County has one of the two community colleges with the highest success rates of getting people to transfer in, uh, into the architecture program. And so I asked if I could be released a couple months early so I could start a semester earlier on that first year, and they, they let me. So that also meant they didn't have to take me and all of my things back to Mississippi and then move <laughs> me back to San Diego. So it, gotcha. it, it, was, it was an economical choice. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, so I studied architecture for a couple of years and um, then found my way into associations like all young people, kind of, or not associations, sorry, but found my way into technology because like all young people, I was still figuring out all of the options and, and you know, what different careers would look like and I was kind of sampling them. And um, working in technology was differently rewarding and definitely more lucrative at the time than architecture would be. And so it just presented a new set of um, opportunities. And following that trajectory, uh, I worked through um, a few different places uh, as I developed my skills and um, wound up taking a job that moved me from San Diego to Washington, D.C. It was an architecture firm, ironically, <laughs> um, to be an IT manager in the D.C. area. And, um, and when I decided that an architecture firm really wasn't the kind of place that I wanted to work because it was very bottom line driven, they had some great, mm -hmm. great parts of it. They have a, a design aesthetic in the built environment that, they are, that any firm is really aiming at. And that's something that's good when you take home and believe in that as a Marketing very similar to what we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Since any staff, sure. you have to have some. Um, you have to internalize a little bit of your organization's mission to really get meaning out of it. And and so that was the thing that was there. But but in the end, it said that that was not the right kind of environment for me. And um, that's how I found my way into an opportunity my first association. And uh, not look back. It's been a fantastic career since then. Once I decided. This was, was the kind of home I wanted and the kind of people I wanted to work with. And, and I've, I've loved every day since. As a CRNA, you spend years preparing yourself for this career, so we don't want to see you lose out on any of the income you've worked so hard to earn. The best way to protect yourself and give you the confidence that a major life event won't disrupt your financial future is through disability insurance. We've known disability income specialist Robert Smith for many years and have seen the work he's done with nearly 2,000 CRNAs over multiple decades. He can help identify any gaps in your existing coverage and fill those gaps by finding the best value on a policy. Contact Robert and let him know you heard about him on our podcast. Send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Protect your greatest asset as a CRNA, yourself and your ability to earn a living by adding disability insurance to your financial plan. That's a pretty circuitous right. route, but it, it gives it you a lot of extra yes. skill sets yeah. that not everybody who would sit in this seat would have. Yeah, and I think that's positive. I absolutely do, absolutely. too. Well, you know, we were talking about on the way over here um, and uh, sort of did a precursor to this. You know, Randy was in here yesterday, and we had a 
brief conversation uh, you know, about you and you're not a CRNA. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that because I think the past two um, CEOs have been mm-hmm. CRNAs. I think um, we just had, we had to pass the bylaw. Yeah. It, it yeah. was in, it was in our bylaws that it had to be a CRNA. So, you know, that might be something to, to kind of get across because yeah. I think, I think that is a positive in a lot of ways. I don't see that as a negative either, but I'd love well, to hear you. your viewpoint on it. Well, and actually, um, if what I understand about the history of the organization is correct, if you, you know, go back to the 70s, where you had a non-CRNA running the organization. Okay. Right. Um, I, I think there's only ever been one. And I believe the title was executive director. So I think technically I'm the first CEO. Huh. That has yes. Been you. Yeah. Being oh, first. absolutely. We so. didn't give up the title CEO. To, right. it, it's, not, it's been within my time. And it's an interesting transition in some, a lot of organizations. Uh, a lot of professional societies make the transition of having a member of the society or a practitioner from the society to having a professional CEO, but not all of them do. And, and even in my own career, going back to the American Psychiatric Association, um, their CEO and medical director has always been a psychiatrist. And um, they've been fortunate enough to be able to um, <coughs> recruit and curate really excellent, proven people who understand it and um, have weathered the tides of, you know, Sometimes you get somebody who has more to go on where you need to understand the different kind of business um, that's involved. And, and But usually when an organization gets to a certain point, um, becoming or maintaining effectiveness uh, requires having somebody who has a more dedicated skill set. That is not typical for somebody who is a practitioner to have been exposed to. And, that's and, a nice way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. So, um, and I've dedicated my career for the past 20 years into understanding how those things are different. Every every organization is different. They, the recipe of what makes one organization work is not going to work in another. And it really gets down to understanding what are the drivers in each different organization and how far you can push and pull on those drivers and you know, obviously how you, you know, how you develop a shared vision, the partnership between the professional staff and functioning board is essential and um, so, so I, I see that there's a tremendous opportunity for uh, for the board to be very focused on defining the long-term strategy and vision for what the AANA can become and I see my job as um, partnering with them at enabling that to be a reality and, and you know, I worry about everything that is inside the organization Effective we are, do we have the right resources? Are we over um, are we over encumbered in terms of what we're trying to do? Do we need to pair certain things back or do we need to grow in new areas? And I bring with me a completely different skill set that is more focused on managing an association professionally so that the CRNAs involved can be focused on setting the vision for the profession. And those two together will be a great partnership. So a CEO is the continuous space. You get a new boss every yes. year. Several, <laughs> well, 11 of them, technically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and you report to the to the board of, yes, of directors. Yes. Um, talk to us a little bit about getting that, that, that new crew every single year and the challenges that you faced in the past and, yeah. and how that's equipped you to come in and do that all over again. Yeah. What well, a revolving door you have. <laughs> it, it, it is. And, you know, I think, I think a lot of people, you know, before they get to 
chief staff officer generically, so different titles. Uh, before you get to that job, um, some people kind of have that almost naive idea of, it's going to be great when, when you actually have that job, you're, you're the boss. And it, no, 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 no. Right. <laughs> it doesn't, you, you, you're trading one boss for 11, 12, 15, 60,000, depending on how you look at mm -hmm. it, which organization. And, and it's important to think about it that way. Um, different organizations have done different things in terms of handling the cycle of incoming and outgoing boards and presidents. The, the AMA is, uh, is, is a little bit different than the, than the three I've been with in the past. And then we have a vice president that is beside the succession currently. And um, more organizations, I think, will, will have that be in the succession. You tend to have two or three lined up and you know you're working with. And when you will have some cyclic change, um, you can you temper that change. Uh, we've got to, so we know, we know the current president, we know the next president. And that, that's better than not knowing the next president. Right. You definitely want that. And so um, what I've done, what I'm going to do here with, with Angie and Drew uh, next week, what I've done with Angie and Matt so far, and what I did with, uh, with, with all of the presidents that were during the last organization. We have a weekly meeting where we talk about everything that Bill Bruce was doing about this. And we had all of the people that are in succession to be president on that call. And so that when it's their turn, um, not only do they have a recent history of what's you know what's been going on, they understand the thinking of the predecessor and what's important and the balance that we're trying to maintain of um, here are the things that the organization wants to do, and here are the things that are constraining how it can do that. Because that's really the meat of those conversations that we're having. We do a robust uh, board orientation. We need to because uh, the ANA board turns over other than the officers 50% every year. And, um, you know, I, I, these amendments that we just had were interesting. And I think one of the things that um, uh, we may want to think about for some future improvement is, is adding some stability. Uh, I think that this high turnover of a board is, is a, a risk factor to be the way that I would see it because um, you don't have the stability and um, we could probably be a better organization if we could find a way to introduce that. And that would be just looking at best practices of an association. So, um, of course, I'm still learning this organization, but I don't see anything that makes me think that that would be beneficial to and you know, so every organization has its own model, and it's really important that um, I develop a good rapport with not just the leaders but the entire and um, make sure that we are all on the same page and have a very frank and open relationship. Which uh, you know, only two months in, but um, a lot of our board orientation should be focused on how do we establish trust and. Uh, accountability between staff and board, and what are the norms that we're going to use to make sure that we we protect them moving forward, so that next year when we do an orientation, we'll have people say, "Yeah, this is fantastic. Here's how we've done it. This is now going to be our culture." Then we build on that each year as we move forward, so that hopefully um, in a few years, as people come into leadership and into the board and, and our other roles. Um, there's less there's less that they need to, to guess at and they have more of a sense of what it must be like because they'll see evidence of it working well and they'll know that there's definitely a culture that they need to be on board.
Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. You know, you said trust with the board, and I think that's extremely, extremely important. But I think there's the other group that needs to be trusted with is the members. Mm -hmm. And I'd love your opinion on how you do that to keep the members engaged um, and and still make sure. Because, you know, we have heard things and so forth, you know, that some members don't trust the a and Right. And, it, you and I'm know, sure it's not just unique to our no, organization. I mean, it's got to be every every organization. Um, and some of that is is discord that's been sowed over a number of years, and maybe there's factions and so forth. But I'd love your opinion because that is, you know, you've done this with other groups, mm-hmm. and I'm sure this is not an anomaly. It isn't, though I will say trust has been something that I've heard more this week than in any week of my career. Interesting. Interesting. So um, it's something that... Um, we, we know that there were some trust issues. I knew that there were trust issues when we did the job. The staff said it's common. There was an interim CEO for a while, and everybody right. has a different opinion about things. Right. We could also see, I was able to see that there were some issues with, with this between staff and the board. There's, there's some credibility issues that um, that needed to be addressed, which is why we aimed at the board orientation. That. And this week, I've seen the extent to which that has um, also sort of been projected out into the members generally. I think that's, that's been made very clear. And I've been talking to a number of members, walked through the exhibit hall, uh, actually waited in line for a massage and spoke to a couple of members for 15 minutes. Or just stand and listen. Yeah, and just, just they all know you. Well, <laughs> or recognize yes, you. Yeah. Exactly. Well, a number of have, have sought me out and, and nice. want, want to tell me what their experience is. Right. And, the number of times that people have remarked on that there's a trust issue it is absolutely notable. It's completely changed my perspective on how I think the next couple of years are going to go. How do you how do you win trust? Well, um, for me, it's all it's actually always been pretty simple. Um, say what you're going to do, then do what you said you were going to do, and then check in and make sure that everybody agrees that you did what you said. Yeah, <laughs> and um, then you will establish credibility trust as long as you're open and clear about what you want to do and what you see in the future and how you see that done. That's trust is, is but for somebody who, who has a capability of um, being steadfast and consistent, trust is easy and it should be. And you know it, it takes time for different people to award it. And right. that will come over time. Some people are very skeptical. I'm an incredibly skeptical person. Um, but I tend to Offer trust um, early and uh, reward that with loyalty, and it, it tends to be returned. When, when, when people understand that you've, you've given it, they, they will also get it. Um, particularly if you've done nothing to imply that they shouldn't. Right. And you know, so really, in order to do that, there needs to be there needs to be communication. And um, when I say that, I mean there needs to be communication, not broadcast. 
Um, so we need to be listening um, more than we're projecting, and that's 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 important. And again, I'm not I'm not saying that we haven't been doing that. Right, I'm right. saying that's this, your this is just a generality. This is the generic yeah. recipe. Right, yeah. right. So, um, but if we haven't been doing that, we will. Yeah. <laughs> Because that's that's step one. We need we need to know. And that's kind of why, even though I'm an introvert, I've been walking around talking to as many people as I can, asking questions. And I want I need to hear from them, from our members, what they see as the challenges and opportunities. Right. And um, and you know, they've been there. are plenty of them. Of both. I think. I think. You know, I, I said this in October. I think it's a tremendous amount of opportunity for this organization. And just have them. That's interesting. Our last three CEOs have been introverts. They sure have. Wow. Yeah. That's very true. Isn't that something? Uh-huh. I thought that when you said that. Yeah. Well, let's talk about culture. I'm sure every organization that you've worked with has their own unique culture. Um, how do you foresee that you can marry retaining culture um, that's with an organization, but yet still moving forward? With change, yeah, that's always a delicate one. Yeah, um, it is. I, you know, so everybody says, "Yeah, this is kind of an overworn statement." It is true. Culture needs strategy for breakfast every week. <laughs> 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 and, and it, yeah, it actually that's good. Does. So, that is, so, so yeah. to change, so you can come in, <clears throat> you can come in with a plan for something. Oh yeah. And if your plan ignores culture, your plan is going to It is absolutely going to fail. Yeah. Um, so when, when we're thinking about culture of the organization, you know, there, there's the internal culture, there's the staff culture. There. There's there's a lot of huge possibility there, um, and yeah, it's a great culture that, that I think we can, we can massage uh, into something that that will be even better. The culture of members themselves, just in the practice, and that's that's another piece of this that informs it. But when we're thinking about the culture collectively of the AANA, I think this is where you're going. Is you know we have um, we're kind of on the on the cusp of a generational shift, mm-hmm. probably not on the cusp of really in the throes of a generational shift. And um, what's normal is for this to be uncomfortable for some people, seeing their profession and their organization changing in ways that, that they wish it would not change. And what's what's Difficult is striking the right balance between honoring and respecting the history and the past and preserving of that what is important to preserve while also showing and, and, and communicating out that you are open and welcome to the newer ideas of these younger people who you know, are five years out of school that are not renewing. And one thing that, that people need to feel in their professional organization that will, that will prevent them from, from renewing is not there. Again, I'm not saying that's sure, sure. They don't get. But if they don't feel like their organization is embracing them and their ideas and their worldviews, they're not going to stay. And the newer generations, particularly, are, are way um, less forgiving of missteps than previous generations. Yes. Um, I'm. I know the generation that sort of straddles a couple of mentalities of uh, you do this because it's the right thing to do and everybody else does it, and you do you do this because it rewards you economically in the long run. That's sort of the, the boomer to Gen X transition, um, kind of in the bubble right. there right. between those two. 
and uh, you know the newer generations that are that are coming along, they they, they see value very differently. We have we can it very um, clearly up front, and they need to be a part of it and have a seat at the table, not because they put twenty years in, but because they're valued right out of the gate. And that sometimes is a cultural shift for some people, and it, it's particularly some of my generation who put a lot of time mm-hmm. into getting and earning our spot. So that's a challenge. Um, I don't know what the right answer for an organization like this is yet, um, but we're going to have to be careful about it. I think I think it gets down to um, respect, but maybe not pure reference for what's come before, and, and, and being open to some things have to change if yeah. the organization is going to continue to be a powerhouse in the profession. Um, it can't be static; it has to be evolved and. Sometimes that's going to be an evolution that some people are not going to be comfortable with, and sometimes they're going to be comfortable with. And we'll just, we'll just seem to work really hard to find the right challenge. Keep, keep the people engaged. I met with uh, several members of, of the Diamond Club yesterday. Oh, yeah. And we, had, we had, I was down here podcasting, uh, so I didn't get to make it. <laughs> so, um, and and I, I look forward to future meetings with them as I They they made themselves available to be a resource that I intend to use because I do think that um, part of the, the the future involves actually being very respectful of the past and knowing when to preserve it. One thing, one thing that we talked about that I really kind of was, was shocked by, I think there's an opportunity here, was um, you know, sort of dropping of history in the profession and, and training program, which um, I've been through the archives at the time or two, and I can't wait to have everybody back in the office and spend more time going back to the archives because there's just some amazing stuff. Oh, <laughs> yes. The history is really interesting. And um, you know, it's something that, that should be celebrated, even if it even if it's not deemed to be you know required from a clinical perspective, it's still something that everybody should have some foundational knowledge in. Well, you've got a whole series <laughs> on Beyond the Mask, the whole historical yeah. series. We you have can listen to it. Everything. <laughs> so you can be on your treadmill in the morning. Or on your on your bike. Or, you know, or, or whatever. And you can listen to it. And the beauty of our his, historical series is by two people who really lived most of it. Most of it. Yeah. You know, uh, so We'll we'll sit we'll we'll push you there. Now I just want I just want to ask you one more question. Your military background (laughs) with the pomp and circumstance, uh, with your ceremonial Mm -hmm. uh, stuff. You know this organization usually has thrived on a lot of pomp and circumstance. I understand that millennials are not so much into that. I think there's going to have to be a a marriage of that, just yeah. kind of like you said, because we are straddling uh, a generational divide. Yeah. Um, there well, are more generations in the workforce and even in our organization. Now they're history, they're saying. Yeah, yeah, what, four, five? There's five now yes. because you've got the latest that just started. But, but yeah, I was thinking about that as you were talking. I mean, you think about the average CRNA being 5152. Then you've got the generation that's, you know, Sandy's generation yes. that has been around and they've seen this organization for years. And you've got to kind of, a, you know, it's a tough job what you've got yeah. because you've got to kind of appease that group because mm-hmm. you don't want to lose them. Right. They've been your pioneers. And then you've got folks that, that are in a different stage of life. We break this down in our organization. You know, as far as CRNAs, you've got this 51-year-old who 
is thinking about, man, I'm going to be out of here in 10 or 15 years. And what does that mean for me? What do I need from the ANA to get me through the next 15 years? Then you've got this kind of middle generation, you're, you're 30 to 40 somethings that, you know, are starting a family. Maybe they've got a family. They're talking about educating their kids. And what do they need from the ANA? Mm-hmm. And then you've got this zero to five. Yep. who've now gotten out. We've transitioned to the DMP or a doctorate level program. They're coming out with $250,000, $300,000 in debt. They're, they're able to make really good money, but they're laser focused, a lot of them, on getting rid of this debt as fast as they can. They want to make as much money as they can, but they want to have a quality of life as well. And, and that's, you know, it's a dichotomy there because making more money takes away quality of life a lot of times. So you, you've got all these different factions that as an association, you've got to somehow meld and bring together and meet everyone's needs to their somewhat satisfaction to keep them as members and keep them engaged. And that, that's tough. That's a, that's a tough job. It really is. And I think from the ANA's perspective, the real challenge is that it gets down to that quality of life part because depending on the work environment, often professional association involvement and engagement bites into quality of life. Mm. It doesn't always, it's not always allowed for from the professional perspective. Sometimes it is, or to varying degrees, but real engagement is usually you're sacrificing time that you're just getting back to being a normal human. Right. (laughs) Right. And so that's, that's a very difficult thing to see, which is, I think, why um, the patience for the organization is probably very, very small in that group because you, know, you only get you only get one or two impressions that have to make up their mind, and then if they don't see it, you might not get them back for a long time. It take a while before they get to a point in their career and gosh, you really, really need to shit. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we want to look very hard at is um, okay, we we know that this problem exists and this one right um, is we go back in time a little bit and look at previous cohorts that have come through this at what point do they show up and then why mm-hmm. and i think i think it's really there's an opportunity for us to have a conversation with them about why have they opted out and right. what brought them back and more importantly what you know is there something other than obviously if we can find a way to help relieve their debt right or find, you know if we can if we can give them something that they can't find anywhere else there might right. be something there right opportunity for us exactly. to get to them. i don't know yeah, but we, we you got to know the problems where you can exactly. solve them, right? That's right. We're 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 we're, get, we're, we're just spitball. So uh, yeah. we need to actually go out and have conversations with people that are that are in those trenches and understand the world from their view and see, you know, is, is there a space for the AANA to to provide some comfort, right, um, in some way or some value in some way? Well, yeah. I will tell you, as Oh, a CRNA before I got really heavily involved, which was a small span of time before I jumped right on in. But whenever I went on the national board, I always knew we had an incredible organization. Looking from the outside, when I was on the inside, I realized that we had an incredible organization. So, it, you know, that's just somebody who has been there in Welcome to this. I think you're going to bring uh, a great perspective with all of your varying backgrounds, your experience, because in my mind, we we can't become just too focused and this is how we do it. I mean, we need to be looking out at how other people do things, too, and we yeah. might can learn something. 
from that. So with absolutely. you having I think three that's, other that's organizations, the strong suit. Yeah, absolutely. you know, because I was a hard sale to, to not have a CRNA as CEO in, in some respects, but I can see that it, it could be advantageous to us. But the other thing is how many CRNAs have that? That's skill set and not a lot. There's uh, there's not a lot of Randys around. No. sitting around. But but you chose a non CRNA to be your co-host. So I mean, I don't know why I you would be I don't know so, what, you know, what saying, is it about y'all. Bill, I want to be really. I know you've got lots of other engagements. So just real quick, because I think this is an important thing to get across. Is you know what do you see as the qualities of a leader that you have, and what you're going to bring to this? Because I think that's important. Mm-hmm. People know your style a little bit. You know, yeah. what, as a leader. I think the, the main thing is, I you can expect this comments here later, but uh, trustworthiness. And, right. uh, my professional ethos is all centered around being accountable, being transparent, and being as direct as you can be in any situation. I, as an introvert, um, like to do a lot more observing and thinking, mm-hmm. and then yeah, introverts like to be confident that when they're going to make a play, it's going to work. It's going to work, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, sometimes we don't get the luxury of waiting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm here today. <laughs> I would much rather have this this conversation in three more months. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, yeah. We'll have another one in three oh, months. Right. Don't you worry. <laughs> I look forward to it. It will be great. The, um, but no, I, I, I think... I've got a long history of, of solving really complicated problems in associations that sometimes prove to not be as complicated as people who are in the box mm-hmm. see them. And sometimes they're incredibly complicated, even however you look at them. And I've always done so by um, honoring the kind of things that I, in other people, that I value in myself. Uh, you know, people who have an ethic of hard work, uh, professionalism of honesty and transparency and hold themselves and people that work with accountable. I think all of those things combined to, you know, you, you may or may not agree with, with the intellectual decisions that somebody wants to You really don't have a hard time um, trusting that they're going to be something that is dependent on your and, Right. And so I think, um, I think that's what I bring. Um, maybe more because, but, um, I'm, I'm incredibly happy to be here. Very proud uh, to be able to have this opportunity. Um, it is absolutely an incredible, an incredible organization. Just like I said, I, it, it's blown me away this past few days, getting to see more and, and learn more about each of the members and, and everything that we do. And, and it's, it's just the beginning. I, I'm going to be learning about this organization and the profession for forever. Um, you know, I don't think I'll ever get the entire picture, um, but uh, but it's going to be fun, and I'm really going to enjoy it. Great, Bill. Thank you so much for your time. <clears throat> it was a pleasure to meet you today, and uh, we're excited to have you and in the CRNA community. I mean, I'm not a CRNA, but I've been around long enough that, you know, I think they've kind of adopted me a little bit, um, and I'm excited for you to be here. I think you're going to bring a, a completely fresh perspective because you come at it from a different angle and, and sometimes that's what you need to do yeah. and uh, well that's why you're here with me right and, and that's what <laughs> makes bring, it work yeah that's what you makes bring it work. a, a so, different angle absolutely so all right Sharon, i think it's a wrap i think so well,
our listeners want to help us grow. Sharon, how can they help us grow? Well, the best way to help us grow is to leave us a review, but make it positive. We all know there's enough negativity in this world. Absolutely. We're in the top 50 medical podcast in the country on our way to number number one. Thanks to our listeners. And we're already number one in the CRNA community and, and look forward to staying there. But we couldn't do it without our listeners. We could not. So keep listening. Share us on social media. Tell all your friends and keep sending us some love. Until next time. It's a wrap. Have you thought about what would happen if you weren't able to work for two or three years? You know, on average, 25% of people will file a disability claim, and most of us aren't prepared for that loss of income. Every CRNA needs to protect their biggest asset, yourself and your ability to earn with a disability insurance policy. We recommend contacting Robert Smith, a master disability insurance specialist with more than 30 years of experience and 1,800 CRNA clients to find the coverage that fits you best. The best way to do that is to send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.